You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome once more to The Natural Philosopher. This is the last in a three-part series on climate justice from a Christian biblical perspective, looking particularly at the parable of the Good Samaritan. In subsequent weeks, I've got uh, some guests lined up and be looking at some book reviews and some other uh, theological aspects of climate change and science and so on. But we're just going to finish off this series. And I'd like to begin this program with something of a funny story. Early last year, I was invited up to Brisbane to give a series of talks and workshops and sermons on climate change and related issues. And on the Saturday morning, I was invited to a workshop on non-violent direct action. We had some people who'd been involved in the Stop Adani campaign and someone else who'd been involved in Love Makes A Way, which was a series of pray-ins in politicians' offices uh, seeking to have uh, asylum seekers released from, um, from mandatory detention. Anyway, it turns out, as I was speaking about the topic that I'm going to talk about now, uh, there was somebody in the audience who was actually a climate change sceptic of all things, but not only did he proceed to tell me that my science was wrong, he said that the, the following approach I'm going to take to the backstory of the parable of the Good Samaritan was um, Marxist or socialist. Now, you've probably heard the phrase cultural Marxism bandied about, which is a term with no meaning. And I'm conscious of the fact that what I want to do now is not, if you like, the primary driver or meaning of the parable. And if you've studied anything about uh, the way in which the parables have been expounded upon or exegeted, to use the fancy term, over the centuries, in the medieval period, people would pull out all sorts of meaning and would really dig into the details of each of the individual elements and characters and so on and, and go well beyond what the point of the story was. The reaction against that, particularly in evangelical circles, is always to find one main meaning in the parable. And then you can apply it in a number of ways. But I think that once we understand the backstory of the parable of the Good Samaritan, that it illuminates various aspects of it. And let's face it, we're not first century um, Galilean peasants. We are 21st century rich Christians, and we're in a position to do some different things, I think, in response to what's being said. This is an important point to note. So... What I'd like to, to start with then is one asking you whether or not you've watched Monty Python's movie, The Life of Brian. Now, I know for some Christians that movie is anathema. And I remember seeing a snippet of a documentary when it first came out. And there was the famous British apologist Malcolm Muggridge, who claimed that they were making fun of the Messianic secret. Which was, if you've read the Gospels, that's Jesus holding back on who he really is until he's, you know, the time is right for him to reveal himself. But the Python crew said that they couldn't find anything funny 
in Jesus himself, but there was a lot of things to poke fun of in religion. I think that's a fair enough point. But anyway, you may remember that there was a, a scene where they're saying, what have the Romans ever done for us? And the various characters in the, the um, Judean people's front listed things like roads, a postal service, uh, aqueducts, and so on. But actually, if you were a part of a conquered people in the first century world, the Romans brought something rather different. Now, Professor of Classics John Richardson suggests that warfare and conquest was the principal activity that occupied the Roman Senate and was the main focus of their foreign policy. Another Roman historian, J.A. North, makes four points to indicate that Roman warfare was deliberate and aggressive. It's just what they did. Uh, both the expectations and the social ethos of Romans of high and low status were geared towards regular war making. They had the attitude and the habits to go with this way of life. Secondly, many Romans, including all those who had a major influence on policy decisions, made and knew that they made large profits out of warfare and out of the expansion of the empire. I wonder if any of this is sounding familiar to you. Thirdly, expansion was a publicly stated aim, uninhibited by the laws that covered treaties. Treaties, like any other rule, are made to be broken. And lastly, Roman wars were often aggressive in intention, even if not formally so. So it was all about expanding empire. Now, in a fantastic book, I can't recommend it enough, Colossians Remixed, Subverting the Empire by um, Walsh and Keysmart, they define empire as totalizing by definition. In the words of the psalmist, imperial mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Empires are built on systematic centralizations of power and secured by structures of socio-economic and military control. They are religiously legitimated by powerful myths that are rooted in foundational assumptions and they are sustained by a proliferation of imperial symbols that capture the imagination of the populace. Anthems and flags and public events and all sorts of other things. Again, hopefully you can hear echoes in the modern period. Professor of Ancient History Keith Hopkins suggests that the Roman Empire was split into a threefold military and taxation structure. So firstly, you had the outer provinces and the, the defensive armies. They're the ones that were taking new uh, territories and protecting them. Then you had a, an inner ring of relatively rich tax-exporting provinces. And then finally, in the middle, was Rome, which was the seat of the central government, and which, like those outer armies, consumed a large volume of taxes, which meant, by and large, that Rome lived in luxury, while the rest of the empire lived in relative or actual poverty. Now, heavy taxation often resulted in farmers losing their land and becoming peasant-tenant farmers. And this heavy taxation also increased trade, so that if you were paying heavy taxes as a local farmer, you had to sell some of your food surplus locally, which was consumed by local artisans or exported to other parts of the empire. And some of the goods of the artisans were made, obviously, for local use, and others were exported to pay these taxes. And so there was a large flow of consumer goods and wealth into Rome itself and the frontier armies. And uh, so Keith Hopkins, an ancient historian, says, and I quote, The model implied an increased monetization of the Roman economy, the commercialization of exchange, an elongation of the links between producers and consumers, the growth of specialist intermediaries like traders, shippers and bankers, and an unprecedented level of urbanization. 
The model illustrates the close connection between changes on the level of individual action by simple peasants and relatively large-scale changes such as the growth of towns. Now, if this doesn't sound to you like globalization in the modern period, um, I don't know how much more clearly to make it. So local economies were therefore disrupted as reserves, um, which could be plundered, and skilled and unskilled labor was enslaved, um, and loans with highest rates of interest led to a loss of land ownership. And remember that something like, I think it's a third of the population of Rome at any one time was made up of slaves. Now, tax collectors, you'd be very familiar with if you've read the New Testament. So Matthew Levi, who wrote one of our Gospels, abandoned his profiteering to follow Jesus. You can read about that in Mark 2. And someone I learned um, New Testament from suggests that he was highly literate and more than likely took scrolls with him to write down the things that Jesus said. So... Who knows? Zacchaeus, of course, was a chief tax collector. And you remember the story of Zacchaeus as he underwent a dramatic turnaround. Now, tax collectors were not the sort of people that the religiously minded spent time with. They were collaborators with the empire, collaborators with Rome. They were taking money for Rome. This oppressive pagan empire with all its religious overtones. But there was also a temple tax to pay, which the Herodians gladly collected. And of course, you had the money changes so that you could change your coins from all over the, the empire into the pure temple coin. And the tax could be really quite onerous. Now, here's a key thing. Remember in the parable of the Good Samaritan that a Levi and a priest walk by without offering any aid whatsoever. Well, guess who benefited from the temple tax? If not, the Levite and the priest. So maybe it wasn't just ritual purity that was in the back of their mind. Maybe they thought, hang on, um, the people who robbed this man may have it in for us. And here's the thing, and I hinted at this last time. Uh, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the work of Hergé, the Tintin animated series, Belgian cartoonist. And there's one um, comic, it's called Red Rackham's Treasure. And it's about the finding of a treasure map and how it goes missing. And one of the reasons it goes missing is that uh, there's a pickpocket running about the markets. And he ends up that he has um, takes Tintin's wallet uh, with the map in. And when they finally discover this man, he has a whole hidden room and a bookshelf that's filled with wallets, all collected in alphabetical order. Now, the, the technical term you'd use to describe such a person is a kleptomaniac. And that comes from the word kleptes uh, in the Greek, which means thief. So, for example, in Luke 12, 39, we read that Jesus will return like a thief in the night. That's not the word that's used in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The word instead in Luke 10 is listai. And this refers to highwaymen who rob for personal gain or guerrilla fighters who fought the Romans and targeted Roman authorities and their Jewish collaborators. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus uses this word listai to refer to Jewish social banditry. If you like, first century Robin Hoods. And they had popular support. I mean, after all, they were sticking it to the Romans who, as I said earlier, were taxing people into oblivion, whose armies had crushed the local armies and they crucified anyone who resisted. So while we think about the crucifixion as being the act of God making peace with humanity, sorry, 
humanity being brought to peace with God, by God initiating it, rather, everyday Jews were crucified all the time. In fact, people across the empire were crucified because it's the way the Romans kept you in line. Tax you into oblivion, and then anyone else who still resists, you crucify. And it's these very people who were crucified alongside Jesus who were these listi, these bandits, these people who had revolted against Rome. So you're beginning to see that there's severe political overtones and socio-economic overtones to this parable. Again, not the primary reason, but if you ask yourself why the man was waylaid in the first place, why he needed to be restored to his original dignity by an act of mishpat, restorative justice, it wasn't just because a bunch of individuals had decided it would be fun to rob a person, but because they'd been put in that position where they'd been not forced to, but you get the th- the the where I'm driving at with this, that they had a limited set of choices. How do I get along in life? Well, I can become a day worker, and, and as you read about in Jesus' parables, a landless worker, or maybe I can start to fight back, which of course is precisely what Jesus fights or speaks against. Um, Unlike these revolutionary figures, Jesus' revolution is one of love and sacrifice. Nonetheless, it is a revolution. He was tried and convicted as a revolutionary. Of course, Jesus, uh, God declares him not guilty. How? By raising him from the dead and showing that he is indeed Israel's long-lost Messiah. And in fact, even more, God come in the flesh. But none of this um, removes the very political thrust of what's going on here. So the oppressive conditions under which banditry flourished um, a taxation and foreign rule. The Roman taxation system consisted of direct taxes levied against agricultural products and indirect taxes in the form of custom dues, road tolls, and they're the kind of the toll collectors you read about in the New Testament, and market taxes. And as noted, um, the Sadducees and Herodians collaborated with Rome. The high priest was a puppet figure chosen by Rome, and there was this oppressive taxation um, associated with the temple as well, which supported the priest and the Levite. So it wasn't just about purity. It's all about um, persecution at the most fundamental level and economic level. So the Lestai then are reacting against an unjust system. And while they turned to violence to protest against it, there were, of course, those embedded in the empire who were doing very well out of the situation. Uh, the emperor, the Roman senate, and the rich families of Rome. The rest of the world fed their lifestyle um, and the military system that protected it. So if you were a member of the Roman Empire and you weren't a Roman um, citizen, which is not something you got by birth, then you suffered at the end of this. And I want to take up now in the second half of the program how we might apply this to the whole climate crisis in the present. So we'll get back to that very soon. Welcome back. So, 
what do we do with this parable? Now we've discovered that there's a backstory to it. What difference does that make? You noted that it's not the primary purpose of the parable. I said earlier, we're not first century Galilean peasants listening to Jesus preach this uh, this message. Who, who would have been listening in the background as Jesus was actually preaching to a religious leader and telling him, think about what you should be really focusing on. So let's think about it this way. We need to be careful about pointing the finger of blame, of course. In the Gulag Archipelago, Alexander Solzhenitsyn warns us that, quote, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? That said, though, and, you know, a lot of the discourse about climate change is around, well, will you stop flying or will you stop eating meat or will you stop doing this, that and the other? What I'm saying is, is that once you understand the backstory of the parable of the Good Samaritan, it asks you or enables you to ask questions about broader structures. In other words, none of us is perfect and you know, can't point the finger in the way and say the prophets of old, perhaps, who were purified by a burning coal like the vision of Isaiah, etc. But we need to be able to speak truth to power and identify injustice. Yet we need to do so humbly, but also non-violently. And I must stress this, um, this non-violent direct action. So in this sense, unlike the Lestai, the bandits of the parable of the Good Samaritan, we will occupy the badlands, which they inhabited, as sacred spaces, the margins where the non-violent kingdom is breaking in. So the first group, or the, if you like, the chief group to identify, of course, is the fossil fuel industry. Now, yeah, I know, uh, you turn on the power and the lights come on. I've got electricity running through my laptop to record this. You turn on your car and you're burning fossil fuels. But at some point, we could have moved off this and we could be on a very different trajectory, but we're not yet. And why is that the case? The fossil fuel industry, and it must be said at some times and places, perhaps um, those in politics who identify with them or relate to them closely can be identified as modern Caesars, senators and the rich families of Rome. And as I've just noted, that society has benefited enormously from fossil fuels. The point is not that great good has not been achieved, um, transport, lighting, heating, etc., as we talked about, but that we need to move away from this now. Now, of course, uh, a 2000, well, not of course, but let me tell you, a 2011 study highlighted that some 3 billion people use biomass and coal as their primary method of heating and cooking. So not coal using the coal-fired power station, but burned on a fire. And that uh, also a, a World Health Organization report, and it's an older one, 2002, estimates that indoor smoke from these solid fuels may be responsible for 1.6 million premature deaths. So connecting people to mains electricity is incredibly important, but that doesn't mean coal. Climate change shows us that there are limits to the burning of fossil fuels. It's time to stop, and yet the industry clearly doesn't want to. Uh, and a couple of years ago, uh, the oil and gas company Santos in Australia adopted a, a business strategy consistent with four degrees Celsius of warming above pre-industrial. And that's a world that we just can't conceive of. And it's certainly not one that's compatible with any form of business. Um, 
Exxon, for example, has known for over 30 years that its industry has been warming the planet. So rather than change their business model, what do they do? They actively promote misinformation. They funded advertorials declaring the science was uncertain. In fact, CEO Rex Tillerson consistently played doubt on the science and even now, while declaring the impact will be great, says that, quote, the people of the world will not and should not give up refrigerators and cars and increasing standards of living. But we know that there's a ceiling on standards of living that to deliver, in terms of delivering happiness. And you can power your fridge off electricity generated by wind or solar. You can have an electric car. So it's not simply a matter of meeting what we might call relatively fundamental needs to be able to get about or keep our food cold so we don't end up with food poisoning. Uh, all the way back in 1997, the then CEO of Exxon, uh, Lee Raymond, I won't share his nickname, said that the computer models were notoriously inaccurate, yet we know that while computer models for climate have become more and more sophisticated, the main story has not changed. So that kind of claim is, um, is bunkum. I mean, Exxon were taking carbon dioxide measurements back in 1979 and were building their own climate models in 1982. And their scientists have published over 50 peer-reviewed papers. And yet, they continue to fund organisations like the... Um, oh, what's the name of the organisation? Uh, and I don't have it with me. But various think tanks... Isn't that, that terrible when you forget what they are? Um, uh, the Something Enterprises Institute. Um, it'll come back to me when I'm off, off the program, but you get the point, is that they were actively funding um, organisations which uh, muddy the waters, if you will. And it's not an uncommon picture around the world. And then, of course, when you get people in organisations which, lo and behold, are meant to be combating this, like Scott Pruitt, who was head of the EPA, the Environment Protection Agency in the US, he said, I would not agree that it's a primary contributor to the global warming that we see, that is the burning of fossil fuels, which ran, of course, contrary to the EPA's own website at the time. So there's way too much uh, meddling at times with the scientific truth. So let's have a think about the parable now in the next few minutes. So, look, as hard as it might be to hear, I think that we as individuals can identify closely with the bandits, the Lestai. Given that the Lestai were under Roman rule, they were victims as well as perpetrators. So they suffered under harsh Roman rule, but then they turned to violence and then themselves were part of the system of oppression. Uh, as victims, they are fellow sufferers under a system designed to make money for the few rather than the many. Today, we hear about talk of the 1% of the global population owning as much wealth as the other 99%. A 2017 report states that the eight richest billionaires have as much wealth as the poorest 50% of the global population. Of the 103 countries in the report, 51% have had their inclusive development index scores declined over the past five years, indicating that societies around the world are becoming increasingly unequal. As perpetrators, the, the bandits point in the exact opposite direction to that which a Christian should be heading. Now, as I noted earlier, Jesus was crucified between two such bandits, 
whom Luke uh, 23 describes as criminals. These men and Jesus were under the same condemnation as one of them berated to the other. You read about that in Luke 23:40, And it's also telling that Barabbas was released, one who was guilty of murder in an insurrection, an uprising or a rebellion. It is likely that Jesus took Barabbas' place amongst his colleagues, which is why one of them could point out that Jesus was innocent. He'd not been involved in any recent violent revolution and therefore did not deserve the sentence of crucifixion for whom this this um, form of execution was reserved. And in John 18, Barabbas himself is described uh, as a Lestes, which is the single of Lestes. He was a bandit, basically. And so given what we know about how they were viewed by the general populace as these Robin Hood figures, we can understand why they may have favoured him over Jesus, at least in their eyes, he was getting something done to solve the problem. So let's think about bandits and us then. As victims under the system that has damaged the climate, we have business businesses that lie, think tanks that lie, politicians that lie, and not many environmentally friendly products or renewable energy resources to fuel our lives. And yet as perpetrators, we consume, ignore our impacts on the climate, and hence impact the global poor and future generations. That makes us bandits, which isn't a great, uh, a great thing to identify with. So just as first century bandits had to choose, had the choice to choose non-violent taking up of the cross over violence, resistance and dissent over consent and obedience, so do we. Let me say that again. We have the choice of resistance and dissent over consent and obedience to the powers that rule. So what does this mean? Uh, let's turn now to Jeremiah 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, do not let the wise boast in their wisdom, do not let the mighty boast in their might, do not let the wealthy boast in their wealth, but let those who boast boast in this, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord. I act with steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, says the Lord. So, Steadfast love is that covenant love, Hesed. Just as we've talked about in the last pass, uh, program, rather, uh, Mishpat. But what about righteousness? It's the Hebrew word Sadaka, And it's different to restorative justice. So he, hear these words from Tim Keller. In the Bible, Sadaka refers to day-to-day -day living in which a person conducts all relationships in family and society with fairness, generosity and equity. Sadaka is behaviour that, if it was prevalent in the world, would render rectifying justice, that's mishpat, unnecessary because everyone would be living in right relationship to everyone else. Therefore, though Sadaka is primarily about being in right relationship with God, the, the righteous life that results is profoundly social. Hear that again. If you're truly righteous, that has a profound social impact. It's not just about you and God. In other words... Love God and love your neighbor. And if you do it in the first place, you don't need to do it again to pull people out of their situation. So, it's not just about binding up the wounds of those in trouble. It's about recreating conditions so that you don't have to do it anymore. We in the West have great wealth. We have great power. We have knowledge about climate change. We live, notionally at least, in democracies, although it's arguable with attacks on the media and all manner of, of uh, double speak in the Orwellian sense that 
democracies in a bit of decline in the West. Yet nonetheless, we still have a window of opportunity. Now, Moses was adopted by the Pharaoh as his son, raised and educated by the royal household, and after running away, returned to use his access to this royal court to plead with Pharaoh to let his people go. Why can't we be like Moses? Queen Esther was quite explicitly told that, and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. For all our seeming powerlessness, as individuals, we get to vote for governments. Despite the power of businesses and mining groups, our voices are still heard. We can protest, we can march, we can get arrested, if that's your thing. We can do all manner of things. At a time when Western powers still have the opportunity to lead the world in the right direction on climate, ordinary Christians, Christian activists, theologians, climate scientists, politicians and others have attained our position for a time such as this. And think about Zacchaeus, as I mentioned earlier. As a chief tax collector, he would have farmed out the collection of taxes to others and would have milked money off the top. He was at the centre of the system, the local hub. Despised by his countrymen, Zacchaeus was a collaborator with Rome, but his repentance was dramatic. Half of what he owned would go to the poor. Jesus didn't ask him to do this. This is what he did from the heart, and it went well beyond what the law required. Now, you might question where Bill Gates' money came from in the first place and his business practices, but he's certainly giving away a heck of a lot of it now for good. So, which really should tell you then that we're in a position to use our power for good, our finances for good. The backstory of the parable of the Good Samaritan says that we have the choice now to be bandits or parts of the system or rebel against it. We need to shake the pillars of empire. It's a time for a revolution. As I've said before, in Revelation we're told that God, Jesus is making all things new and while that's going to require the ultimate return at the end of time and the resurrection for it to become complete yet you and i are now in a position to have power and to do great good in the world we need to challenge the empires of our day we can't sit back and simply bind up the wounds of those who were victims of the climate crisis because there's just going to be more of them and it's just going to be more often and it's going to include ourselves are you going to love your neighbor as yourself be it your neighbor in space those suffering now or in time, our children and their children and future generations. And now you're going to do that by being a revolutionary. That's a challenge to us all. And as I said, I hope in future to have those sorts of people, those sorts of activists on to share their passion. Thanks again for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.